0: CR101 Radio Network is a Christian Reconstruction Internet radio station that hosts and broadcasts lectures, sermons, and podcasts 24-7. GCS Apprenticeship Program is dedicated to training the next generation of Christian teachers so they can own and operate successful and profitable Christian schools. Learn more at cr101radio.com and gcsapprenticeship Welcome to Justice in His Kingdom, a podcast that examines the religious nature of justice. Featured on Christian Interest Radio and Podcasting, CR 101 Radio. Your hosts are Roger Oliver and Jerry Lynn Ward.
1: Hello, everybody. This is another episode of Justice in His Kingdom, and we're really pleased to have as our guest today Tim Yarborough who lives in Alabama, and I'm going to let him tell you a little about himself because he has been very active in advancing the kingdom and advancing justice in the area that we're here to discuss today, which is human trafficking. Welcome, Tim.
0: Thank you. It's good to be with you.
1: Yes. Would you tell the folks a little bit about you? Uh,
0: yeah, I am I'm, uh, I presently live... Uh, in an area eight miles from where I was born and raised, so uh, I've uh, I've lived there my entire life. I live in a county of about thirty four thousand people, and uh, I have been an entrepreneur uh, since an early age, and uh, and presently own uh, three businesses that I operate. We have. Uh, uh, activities with quite a number of other businesses. Uh, And over the years, we've had, this is our 38th year of a mentoring program. Uh, And we have helped start uh, between 75 and 80 businesses with young entrepreneurs and young couples Uh, in our our local area, which is our focus. uh, We have been intimately involved in developing, uh, trying to recover the care of widows uh, back within the fold of the Christian community itself, and and we say the Christian community because we 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 don't focus on recovering that within the church. That's not God's first priority. Uh, God's first priority is to recapture that within the family structure itself. Mm-hmm. And then there are qualifications for widows if if they they uh, you know don't have family that can care for them. Uh, then it comes to the congregation or the Ecclesia of, of Christ. Uh, we've also been involved with abuse uh, within the church for a number of years. And uh, and it was through these two areas. When I say abuse, typically it is women and children who are being abused by the uh, husband and father. And uh, <clears throat> where the treatment of them is just so uncovenantal and it is absurd. Uh, it's, it's wicked, it's evil. And what transpires, uh, is uh, oftentimes when these complaints are raised within, particularly the Protestant church world, which is mostly where we deal with it, uh, the victims are then victimized again by the, uh, church authorities. And, um, and it, it's, it's a pattern that is very discernible. And so we've helped rescue a number of people and families, women and children from uh, these types of situations and helped to provide some legal assistance. And, and, um, and we can talk a little bit more about that. But it's primarily through these two areas that we began to get exposed initially to sex trafficking that was going on within the church world. And uh, that began our uh, our development of, of coming to realize that this was a huge problem within the uh, the Protestant church world, and so we began to get involved in uh, uh, connecting with organizations uh, that had uh, you know uh, some investigators who had uh, greater expertise in this. Uh, many, like us, uh, we, we began to learn counseling and how to deal with these situations. We studied books. We uh, we did a lot of things like this uh, and saw some extremely difficult situations. Um, with uh, the youngest child that we've had to deal with that was involved in sex trafficking was four years old and was being trafficked to uh uh, initially to an individual a man who was 31 the child was being trafficked by the mother uh, this is uh, this is not as uncommon as one may think uh, we we've been involved in a number of cases of abuse that occurs within the home uh, we uh, for instance uh, we had one case uh, in which there were uh, a large, a very, very large family. Uh, the family attended a well-known Reformed congregation. If I said the name of the congregation, uh, probably everyone that will listen to this podcast would would know it. Uh, and in that particular case, uh, as it unfolded, uh, we discovered that the father uh, was abusing the older daughters, and all of the older sons were abusing all of the younger daughters. Um, uh, and it, 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 it finally imploded. Uh, and so, uh, that led us out to, uh, to involvement in investigations with what was happening with DHR and CPS, uh, with kids that, uh, age out of the CPS system or the DHR system, depending on what, what you call it in different states, uh, and, and We discovered that the very organizations that were um, put in place, uh, you know, presumably to protect these kids uh, through graft and corruption were becoming one of the primary channels of feeding sex trafficking in this country.
1: What kind of organizations? Are you talking about governmental organizations or a range of them?
0: Yeah. Uh, Governmental organizations, uh, Child Protective Services, Department of Human Resources... Uh, Health and Human Services. Uh, and uh, in the course of this, over the years, uh, discovering the involvement of pastors, uh, congregational leaders, uh, sheriffs, law enforcement officers, up to and including members of the FBI and the CIA uh, that provide cover for this activity. So, uh, a lot of, uh, about 80% of what we, we deal with is, is directly related to abuse itself, uh, within the, the Protestant, uh, church. The other 20% deals with, uh, trafficking of one form or another. And, um, uh, then, uh, we go further in our local areas. Uh, we have, uh, a, a work that we do to single moms and, and, uh, with their children, uh, and uh, that's really important if we're going to, you know, uh, like you have a lot of people who are involved in the abortion, uh, appearing at abortion clinics, and trying to save children there. And and there is a certain level of admirableness about that. However, uh, it is being engaged in a war and trying to win a battle. Uh, it's it's not that it's not necessary, but if we don't Uh, go into the communities where fatherless homes uh, are the norm and begin to take the redemptive form of the gospel into those communities, the escalation of this is just going to continue. Uh, One good example, for instance, uh, this is not in my local area, even though we're impacted by this kind of thing. In Memphis, there's one zip code in which 93% of the households are headed by single Women, And in that same zip code, there are 10 intact families in the entire zip code. Uh, It was made a part of a documentary called America Lost, in which there were three communities that were kind of detailed. Um, But out of this, uh, you you often discover in poverty uh, that uh, sex trafficking has tremendous inroads there. Uh, because, uh, you know, people become desperate, they're, they're willing to sell their children. Another area that we are involved in is uh, where we run across a lot of situations uh, where you have uh, illegal immigration. And when you have illegal immigration, uh, what happens is, is that people are trying to stay underground. These mules, our carriers, know this. And what they will do is uh, they will take particularly these young women and they will rape them in the process of transporting them. Often they will get them pregnant. Uh, we have for a number of years uh, helped to uh, where these young women uh, want or have to have the babies and they're at the hospitals, identify these things, working with hospitals and CEOs and administrators in these and uh, these children are up for adoption, and we've developed a program to adopt them directly from the hospital, which keeps the cost at a more affordable level. And uh, but these girls then try to give them contact points, in particular, because otherwise, what will happen to these girls is that they will be forced either into labor slavery or sex slavery in order to survive. And um, and so you you. After a while, you'd learn from some experience with it, uh, people you can trust, people you can't trust. Uh, you, you would like to think that it's safe always to turn to people within the law enforcement community, and that's just not true. Uh, even though there are some areas in which uh, law enforcement agencies have really done a great job in dealing with this. In Alabama, we only have one police department that has done a top-notch job of dealing with this, and that's in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Uh, they, they are by far, in a way, the leading law enforcement agency, the local police department there in dealing with this issue. Of course, that's home to the University of Alabama. And um, so that's that's kind of some of the things that we're involved in. We have an adoption program. We've uh, we've helped. Uh, we, we recruit a lot of families uh, that... Are willing to adopt, and our major initial emphasis has been to adopt every abandoned baby in North Alabama, and uh, so far that uh, the Lord has been pleased to to bless that, and uh, we have an attorney that helps handle that uh, from a legal perspective, and uh, and so uh, you know it's comprehensive. We we have a very broken social system, and so the, the needs are just enormous. Uh, one other thing we do with abused women, we're working towards trying to get our county and our city to take up a resolution a resolution declaring our city and our county a sanctuary for abused uh, women and children. Uh, there in our local area, we have uh, purchased homes uh, in which we use as transition homes. We've also worked with two other ministries that have uh, homes and uh, uh, we have presently over 50 families who have developed uh, additions to their homes in which they will take in uh, abused women and children uh, into their homes so that they can come into a family setting that has some uh, uh, stability to it. And uh, obviously, they come out of a situation that is, is just bereft of any type of stability. So that, that's kind can of you, a, a general overview.
1: Can you explain to the folks out there what brought this to your attention and what led you into this? I mean, I think when most people think of human trafficking, they think of people snatched off the streets and uh, and, and something very rare, but it sounds like it's more prevalent than we think, then it's not necessarily through through abduction or the ways that most people think about human trafficking, but what led you to this and uh, and, and made you decide to do this? I think it would be very informative for people out there to know that so that they can turn their attention to it and know what to do.
0: Well, uh, initially, uh, again, it was our involvement with widows uh, our, our great concern initially, along with, with it working within our community of trying to get people on the same board with ethical, the ethical aspects of the kingdom. Uh, we have the, uh, I'm a Southern community. Uh, we have in, in our County of 34,000 people, we have 173 churches, uh, I always tell people, uh, we've we're, we're actually lost a few churches, that we always keep one church building open in case you can't get along with the other people in the 173 churches we have, so you've still got a place you can go. Uh, we, we are heavily divided in our community along denominational lines. Uh, we have what I call a membership competition that goes on among our churches over peripheral issues and not related to justice. In fact, as a general rule uh, in our overall product, I mean, we're very dominant Protestant, uh, we don't even have a concept of justice except as it's defined by the existing humanist state. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is, is our knowledge of God's law and God's uh, concept of justice uh, is almost missing. So as we begin to involve ourselves with the care of widows and realize uh, that what what we were witnessing was the, the disassociation of the intergenerational aspects of covenant living, uh, we warehouse our elderly now. Uh, we do to them in their old age what we do to young people in their young age with schooling. Uh, we warehouse them. And that was never God's program. It was always God's program for the the parents and the grandparents uh, to be among their family, uh, to, care, to be cared for by those that they cared for. Uh, one of the things that we do with widows is uh, we really encourage the interviews of widows. Uh, where families go and go as families. And you take kids and let the kids call, crawl up on granny and they do all the things kids do. And granny just loves it. There's this incredibly rich book called The Medical Consequences of Loneliness. And the, the, the single greatest problem among our elderly in terms of, of that is, is their loneliness. I mean, they're, they're going to get old and, and we're going to have these, these issues. But the loneliness is something we can do something about. And so as we began to investigate this and we realize we had a program, uh, uh, when I say a program, an understanding of God's word when we started out, that it was never God's process for the church to become another government program. Uh, in other words, we, we create a program and we become what the government is now. Uh, their dependency is on the government, et cetera, rather than the interconnection of the family. Uh, In my community, which is a very religious community, we have a tremendous problem with intergenerational fractionalization. And so it was as we began to investigate this and become active, like we have a a several prong approach, like uh, with our young families, training them to already start thinking about from the time before they ever get married, uh, the care of their elderly, and begin to think about building onto their home, uh, providing a place, training their children that this is what's going to happen. We're gonna take in grandpa and granny uh, when they, they can't any longer care for themselves. And, and I'll tell you about our Green Gate project uh, in a little bit, it's a fascinating story. Uh, and, and so as we begin to investigate this, we begin to discover this, this abuse issue uh, and and through the abuse issue, uh, we begin to to discover what was happening to primarily the women. Now, we have had some cases where the women were the abusers, and and, and the men were the abused. But the percentages are are highly in favor of men being the abusers. Uh, and most of the time, the reactions that you see from the women are due to the abuse from men. But what we found in the church world was that they dealt with the women on the basis of their reaction. And so what we had, we, we, as we, we kept going into this, uh, we had where the term submission had been redefined as subjugation and not covenantally. And as we traveled down this path, we begin to notice these kids. And, and there was just something wrong. It was, it, it was not right. And, and, and so you, as these children come to trust you, they begin to tell you stories. And that's where we first began to discover abuse uh, going on. And uh, then in our local area, uh, there were some concerns about some particular congregations of which some of these people were associated with. And it was through that process we, we learned about a pastor, a lawyer, and a judge, and a sheriff who were all involved in trafficking uh, young children and women. And this began, to, I mean, at first you're like, uh, you know, our, our thing is, is it's, it's almost incomprehensible And you don't want to believe it. Uh, And yet all the evidence is there. And so it led to some research projects. And I won't uh, spend a great deal of time on that. But this actually goes back where it proliferated in our country back to Nazi Germany. Uh, Heinrich uh, Heinrich, uh, Himmler uh, had a project that uh, Adolf Hitler was very fascinated with. Uh, and that was the ability to create mind control through sexual traumatization before the age of five. And uh, you can you can there's a lot of research on this. But if you know about Operation Paperclip and uh, what, what eventually became MK Ultra, and, uh, you know, the uh, intelligence agencies experimentation with mind control, Uh, you you will discover that there was a lot of this that grew out of and was fostered within government circles Uh, and it it proliferated. And as we have become a more sexualized uh, culture uh, it's, it's encompassed every single facet of our, of our culture. Uh, So uh, from that, uh, we, we don't have any web presence or social media presence or anything like that. But what happens is, is that you get on an information network out there, how it happens and all of that. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, but then people begin to call us and, and we would get uh, calls from people from states. Uh, we didn't know them and we began to learn half to how to deal with people we didn't know anything about. And uh, we've had a number of people over the years who have come to our community, uh, and we provide housing for them. We take care of them. Uh, they need a chance to recuperate, to recover, uh, how to work through their trauma. Uh, and it's it's really the most, uh, I guess, the the, the most um, extensive uh, case we've been involved in. It took a woman seven years uh, to to be able to just begin healing. And uh, you, it's, it's very difficult to explain to people who haven't gone through it with some of these people how that trauma really impacts them. And uh, there's a great book called The Body Keeps a Score, uh, which really is very helpful in helping uh, individuals to understand how the human body was designed by God to create Trauma safety zones, as it were, how how that the mind actually uh, becomes like a photograph machine in the in periods of trauma, but then it closes the door and protects them uh, from that. And uh, and so there there there's a whole technique, as it were, to helping people to recover from trauma. But the reality, or or, or the basic part of that is, is that they um, it's, it is better for them not to talk about it which seems strange, but learn to journal it out, to write it out. And we encourage them to write it out. And what happens is when when people just talk about what happens to them, uh, they often relive the emotional impact of that. And so what happens when they begin to write it out, they're forced by their mind to begin to process logically. And what you discover is when they first start doing that, is that what they write out is very fragmented. It's it's like, and this is what causes people not to believe them because it, it is fragmented. It's it, it, it jumps all over the place. Uh, but as they be keep continue to write it out, what happens is the picture becomes clearer and clearer. And what occurs in their uh, thinking is that, that that closed door that would open for a little bit and then close and open for a little bit and close begins to open wider and wider. Uh, Research has demonstrated that people who are traumatized, their vision capabilities are 44 times the normal human beings. They're very alert to what goes on around them. Uh, This is also true with their sensitivities to smell, to taste, uh, to perceptions. Um, I mean, they are incredibly perceptive people, and they're extremely sensitive. And and there are certain things when you're around them, like we've been in a restaurant with uh, a young girl who uh, was kidnapped at the age of 11. Uh, When we uh, uh, met her by events that transpired, uh, she was 17. And she had been trafficked from the age of 11. The first thing that they did to her Uh, After they uh, took her, uh, and they took her from a mall, uh, was they raped her for forty-eight hours, and so traumatized that little girl. Uh, And and then every day of her life for the next six years, uh, typically what happens is is from the ages of like eleven to fourteen, maybe eleven to fifteen. they, they are trafficked out and raped uh, an average of 12 times a day. From that point on, it goes up to 20 to 24 times a day. And so this is their life. And so we, we were sitting with this young girl in a uh, restaurant and, and, and uh, some of the ladies with us, and, and there was a smell that hit her. And the next thing we knew, she was on the floor under the table weeping uh, crime. She had triggered her. It was one of her memories, something that had happened. And uh, thankfully, in the Lord's good providence and the love of many people caring and being patient and, and so forth, uh, today this, this young girl leads a very productive life helping others. Uh, justice has never been served in her case uh, in terms of the perpetrator's. Uh, so those are just some of the the experiences that you go through, um, and what got us into it. And now we're we're on like a uh, a network uh, out there of people who call and contact us, and and um, so uh, you 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 try to make sure that uh, you know you understand what the circumstances are and. Uh, particularly as it relates to uh, any legal proceedings that are going on, uh, because you want to encourage them to to get help, you know, where they can first of all to get themselves free of that if they can, or at least resolve it, because it, it, it can lead to great conflict for them.
1: Well, it sounds like what you're doing is trying to build up the kingdom from from the bottom up, uh, and we with the widows and orphans. And, and when you use the term widows, you're using it a, in a more broad term than pe- most people think of. Uh, that would be single women with children, not necessarily women whose husbands have died, right? Yes.
0: Uh, we, there, there are a lot of elderly ladies in our community. Uh, I haven't checked lately, but last year we had 917 widows in, in our county. And uh, so we we try to keep up with them uh, and and keep it with their and, and get other people involved in the, in the care of, of widows. Uh, but
1: with, earlier and earlier, when you were uh, talking about widows, you were not just talking about women who's who lost their husbands
0: that is correct. Death.
1: And 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 uh, uh, another thing about this is since you're building from the bottom up, is there any role? In, in what you and the others who work with you do, uh, does it any of it involve confrontation of the civil authorities or the ecclesiastical authorities, given what you've told us about oh, yeah. their participation or inaction? Uh,
0: yes. Uh, we try to develop relationships with all of the various law enforcement people. Uh, and, and one of the reasons is this, is that, the wives of policemen. And, and it's in our area, it's mostly policemen. But it is estimated, and I think it's low, that 40% of men who are in the police force are abusive to their wives. Uh, I think that's low. Uh, I think it's much higher than that. And these women are afraid of coming forward because there is a protection scheme that goes on within the police departments. Uh, for instance in in our area and, and we keep statistics on this uh, the last seven cases of which women have come forward are it has you know it has the, the circumstances so escalated uh, that they came forward and, and made complaints against their husbands who were in the police force. Uh, the case would be moved to a different jurisdiction and then it would be delayed and delayed and delayed until, uh, finally, they would have a hearing, but the original officer, who was the arresting officer or the intake officer, doesn't show up to court, and they dismiss the case. So, well, that what is like a problem
1: with prosecutors and judges?
0: You're not kidding. Uh, it's it, it, it. And now you take, for instance, your wife, and and these wives get together, they talk. And so, what do you think? Uh, they have these conversations. It's hopeless. They're they're going to protect them. And and so we try to bring exposure to that uh, within the church world. Uh, we are often called upon to confront uh, the uh, leaders of various congregations who revictimize the victims. Uh, th- th- they will. Uh, what happens is, is that uh, the the men have learned how to play the language game. Uh, you know, in the scriptures, we have this this principle that says, uh, they that cover their sins shall not prosper, but he that confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. And what we discovered when abuse begins to come out uh, is that these men have learned how to... Uh, Use the language of religion in order to uh, cover their sins. They know how to placate the male leadership with their use of words, and and the wife, uh, she, on the other hand, is very much aware of his history and his conduct, and so she doesn't trust him and she doesn't trust what he's saying. And since these guys have no history, uh, you know of. of of involvement with this guy. They're hearing all the things they want to hear, but she knows. And so what happens is she becomes the non-submissive wife. And the reality is, is that she's the only one there except for him, because he does know, uh, who understands the truth of what's happening. And that he is deceiving, and she's gone through it so many times, she recognizes it for what it is. And so what we we try to help them to do is to deal with, uh, okay, the, the, the scripture talks about confessing and forsaking actual behavioral change. And through the years, uh, we've had about a 75% failure ratio of men actually changing their behavior. I come to discover we are actually doing pretty good because in most instances, it's above 90%. Uh, but we have a very specific thing uh, that, that we do in relationship to uh, behavioral analysis. And uh, that that relates to a lot of times when men, you know, they, they, they're the head of the home and they focus on their authority and, and they're, they're very domineering. And so we have some questions we ask. Um, uh, because uh, after a while, you see the pattern, you know what it is. And we ask them, okay. so as the head of your home, tell us what you do in order to demonstrate patience in your home. Tell us what you do in order to demonstrate self-control. Because in 90 percent of the cases that we deal with, the children in those families will tell us that their home life is governed by trying not to set off their dad's anger. Anger is the controlling principle. That man's a fool, the Scripture says, because anger rests in the bosom of a fool. God tells us this man's a fool, and uh, and they recognize it, but they're terrified of him. Uh, we're dealing with two uh, a, a wife and two young daughters right now. Uh, the daughters want nothing to do with their dad. They're terrified of him. And uh, and this is what we normally find. And then they're taught. Um, you know, this, this principle of honoring your father and mother in such a way that what that actually means in practice is no, no matter how egregious their conduct is, that you must submit to it, uh, rather than recognizing tyranny for what it is and calling it on the carpet and being able to get help to deal with it. So when we confront these church leaderships, we generally try to do it in person, uh, and you can have resentment. So we, we contact them ahead of time and, and we tell them, look, uh, you know, just straight out the way it is. The reason these people contacted us is because they don't trust you. And they don't trust you because you re-victimized them. Either you don't understand what you're doing or your theology is really off. And, uh, you get various responses to that, but the general response is is that the leaders in these congregations do not want to go any further, uh, because they want to protect the institution, and uh, they will oppress the, the wife and the mother in order to save face and not promote righteousness in their in their congregation.
1: Well, that's pretty disturbing. The Westminster Confessions, when it addresses the Fifth Commandment, makes a a real emphasis on the duties that the superiors owe the inferiors, and it's as if that is not taken into consideration in the experiences you have had. Is that right?
0: Oh, that is absolutely true. what, what we see happening over and over and over again, and we have involved in our, our local community, about 50 people involved in this, this network of work and ministry. Uh, and in our ultimate goal is that we, we would like, at least my goal uh, personally in my lifetime, I would like to be able to leave behind at least 200 disciples in my community who understand the law of God, the justice of God, and have developed intentional influence in our community in, in perpetrating these, these ideas of the ethics of the kingdom. I could care less about the denominations. Uh, it's, it's the kingdom and the ethics that are important. And, uh, but uh, when it comes to the superior and the inferior and the equals, what happens is I'll give you just a good example of, of how this works. Uh, there was a situation in which anger was the dominant theme in the home. And one of the children, uh, who was in their 20s by this time, uh, and we began to meet with them, uh, eventually moved out of the house because of the anger. And when they went to the church leadership to get help dealing with the dad's anger, it had been the dominant controlling factor from the time that he was a little boy. And so what happened when he brought up the fact that this has been happening since he was a little boy, so we're talking a couple of decades here, what happened to him was the church began to, the church leadership began to attack him for being bitter and resentful and unforgiving, rather than the fact that he was giving them a history of behavioral analysis that should have said to them, look somebody in a superior position here to whom much is given, much is required, is oppressing those who are in inferior positions. Uh, But it was turned around. This is the normal course of what we see happening in these kinds of situations. Uh, The the person wasn't angry. They weren't bitter. uh, They were depressed because they didn't think that they were going to get any help and the reason they didn't think they were going to get any help is because they didn't get any help. Uh, they had an accurate analysis of, of what was going on. So uh, when they came and talked with us and we went through the history of it, uh, they they wanted to move out. And we actually encouraged them to do so. Uh, you, you are under no obligation to remain under a tyrant if you have the option of getting out from under And And... Um, Uh, Of course, you can imagine in certain circles what that kind of counsel will get you uh, in terms of feedback. Um, And uh, and then they will say things to you like, well, uh, like we've had to go in and rescue people in these situations. I mean, we're talking adult children here. We're, We're talking 25, 28, 30 years old, and we have to go in and rescue them. And, and what I mean by rescue them is, is to help them to navigate a way out because the mental stronghold and the emotional stronghold and the religious stronghold has conquered them and, and get them out. And uh, once you do that, you know, then and they get into an environment where they have uh, some freedom to think and freedom to make choices. Like uh, they're not accustomed to the fact that, We will not make decisions for them. We will sit down with them. We will help them understand God's word. We will ask them questions. Okay, so what are the consequences of this? We go through this whole process, but we tell them, you must make the decisions. You must make them in such a way you're willing to live with the consequences because all their lives, other people have not only made the decisions for them, but have told them that that's the way that they honor God is by other people making decisions for them. They keep them in a perpetual state of immaturity. And, and so when they come out of it, uh, again, you have to be very patient with them because you're, you're dealing with a 25-year-old that has been taught the decision-making skills of a four-year-old. And, and so it's very difficult, Even and in, in, in oftentimes what brings the conflict to them is the fact that they are becoming adults and, and they're having these, these natural inclinations to a, a greater independence. Uh, which is exactly what God designs. And and so rather than growing them up into maturity so they can live directly under the authority of the Holy Spirit through the scriptures, uh, men or institutions, uh, whether it's dad, church leaders, whatever the case might be, become the mediator between them and God. It's cultic.
1: That's amazing. So they're not it's, even. It's very. Dominant. These are families that are very not dominant. even preparing. In in religious families, Christian fa- or supposedly Christian families. Yes.
0: And uh, just to give you an example, it becomes uh, this kind of stuff becomes a uh, an environment within a congregational setting. Uh, there was a book written back in the 60s that talked about three ways to conquer a people. Uh, one of them, of course, is physically. You just go in and bait them and shoot them and kill them and uh, you, know, you conquer them. The other one is through religion and through uh, economics. And so if you can get people mentally to accept their own subjugation as a religious obligation, you've conquered them.
1: Wow. Roger,
2: did you want to ask some questions? Well, just a couple of observations. Uh, This this is an ancient problem. I read, uh, last year I read Libido Dominandi, sexual liberation as social control. And then we had the privilege of of, uh, interviewing Stephen Baskerville, the author of The New Politics of Sex, which is a continuation of the same theme. And I've seen it in my family. Back in the 60s, I had cousins that were, Pimp and their sister, and uh, my pastor complains about uh, sexual immorality in the church today. And uh, just recently, uh, <clears throat> a friend contacted Marcy about some things like this going on. But what I appreciate about your approach, Tim, is that it's local, and it follows a, a biblical due process. There's an investigation process. There's a interviewing process. There's a bringing this out locally. It's not the uh, Me Too movement where an accusation is uh, is is, an, is a conviction uh, in the in the court of public opinion, which is our problem. We shouldn't have a court of public opinion; it should be a local process with due due process. And it's uh, and it's obviously bearing fruit, that's that's just great. Uh, it's it happens here. As a Matter of fact, uh, in our time here in Mexico. Uh, a church leader was abusing children, and boy, did he have a hard time accepting, signing a, a covenant that he, uh, agreeing to be checked and his computer checked, and he refused to do it. He expected to be able to just stand up in front of the congregation and confess his sin and return to his, his position, and uh, he ended up undermining the church and causing a revolution, and it was just a mess, just a mess, just profoundly. Uh, but it's all over the world. It's nothing new. and uh, But anyway, my uh, what I really appreciate is it's local and it's following biblical due process to uncover these things. So congratulations uh, uh, on that part. I don't know if you have anything to observations about the opposite of this. It's all up to the highest levels of our government. Uh, it's not just, uh, what's his name, Epstein and his girlfriend. It's all over the place, and uh, it's a it's a fundamental problem that we have to start at the local level to deal with. What, was you, what would your response be to do to the Me Too, uh, the opposite of this, the protection for the accused, I guess well, is what I'm thinking of. The,
0: the, the Bible provides answers for that because we, we can never forget, even in human sympathy, we can never forget that God's goal is justice. Mm-hmm. And and so in justice, the, the scripture says the first one to present his case seems right until mm-hmm. his neighbor comes and cross examines him. Uh, we have been involved in cases where false accusations were made, and they were proven uh, to be false. And uh, and it's a you know it's a very thin line sometimes where you need great wisdom. Like for instance, there will be allegations of sexual abuse when in fact what they're doing is they're, they, they've not been listened to for so long about abuse. They're escalating the charges in order to try Mm -hmm. to get a hearing. Right. And, and, and uh, sometimes uh, this, this, uh, these charges are vengeance and vindictiveness. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now we haven't had uh, a great deal of that, but it happens. And, Mm -hmm. um, so you, you do have to be aware of that. And I also think that as this grows and awareness grows is that th- th- there will be a great uh, temptation, as you said, to uh, if you're not careful to toss the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there will be people we've had people that just because we would not accept the full story without as much validation as you can give, because sometimes evidence in these kinds of cases can be very difficult uh, Mm -hmm. because it happens in darkness. And, uh, but you have children uh, that tell you things uh, that there is no way that these children knew this except by experience. And uh, I can remember in one particular case, Uh, A four year old uh, when was being asked in the court, uh, you know, in evidence, uh, you know, what would the man say to you? And the the little four year old said, well, he would say, make it stand up. And because the child that the the opposing attorney began to attack this child because they couldn't use the language of an immature adult. I mean, he, he was evil. That man was wicked. And he, he was fully aware that he had a client that was doing evil. And rather than get that man to confess to his, his evil, uh, he was trying to protect his evil. I mean, it was, it, it was enough to just anger you. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to be careful about the, uh, and a lot of times, uh, like they want to defend women who willingly subjugate themselves to use sex as a tool for advancement. They And they were just as much a participant in the process as the man. And then to claim that you're a victim later uh, is to do the scripture says uh, that if a man attempts to take advantage of you in the city or the field at the time that it happened, you must cry out. And so to keep it under wraps for years and years and years, even though there are cases where you can, they're, they're afraid to come forward, or they will lose their career. Uh, those things tell you about their motivations. Mm-hmm. If their career was more important well, to them than uh, justice, well, yeah. now you regret it. Uh,
2: we are not. Um, we are certainly not omniscient, and uh, justice isn't based on statistics. Although the weight seems to be, as you pointed out, uh, against the men generally but as you say, you gotta you, uh, we are not omniscient, but where two or three are together together to, to work justice, uh, there the Lord is to guide us and direct us and uh, we're gonna, we're bound to make mistakes, but in general, we got to do something. you got to take the nerve, you have to have the nerve to step up and do something. I think that's where we're where we're lacking. We don't have the yeah. courage, the moral courage in the church anymore, even to teach God's law.
1: I'm a big proponent of uh, checklists and task lists and tactics lists. Tim, if someone wanted to get involved in advancing the kingdom in, in some of the subjects that you've talked about, which is much broader than human trafficking, it also has to do with uh, the family structure in society. What what kind of, of t- list of tactics or tasks would you give Uh, Christians who want to emulate what you're doing?
0: Well, the the first thing I would say is that the the ultimate cure to this is a regenerated family, uh, you know, where the the gospel is actually practiced. Now, I'm a Christian reconstructionist. Uh, I believe in theonomy. Uh, I believe that God's law is the right way. However, My experience is in the Christian Reconstruction community is that we have a highly disproportionate number of bad marriages. And the reason that we have a highly disproportionate number of bad marriages, and I mean within the religious world, is because we don't take seriously the cultivation of our relationships within our marriages and within our children and so forth. We, we're, we're too far out there in terms of these, these social issues to realize that if the fruit tree doesn't bear fruit, all the rest of that doesn't mean anything. And so we, we term it, uh, uh, Brother Roger has seen this because I've taught it for, I don't know, 30 years or so. Uh, what we call the circles of influence, and uh, how that you develop your lifestyle on the basis of God's assigned priorities. So the the first one is, of course, self government, and and if a man can't govern himself, he's not qualified to govern a family, and so that's what happens to us. We have men who have no self control. As Proverbs twenty five twenty eight says, he that has no control over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Um, Uh, In in all of the cases of abuse, uh, Jerry, that we have been involved in inside the church world, there is two dominant themes. One is anger, and the other one is the violation of the sixth commandment by the use of the tongue. The scripture says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it will uh, eat the fruit thereof. But death and life, both sides of the Sixth Commandment, are in the power of the tongue. And a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. In this case, all of these men use their tongues to create death inside their homes rather than life. And there's a whole study we do on that um, about the the control of the tongue. Richard Baxter has this wonderful list of 15 helps uh, to help uh, control the tongue. and, and learning how to change the environment through doing that. So that's the first thing you've, you've got to, you know, you've got to govern yourself and you've got to be willing to be a participant in creating a home that is a home of life. Uh, we, with the, with the men in our area, we do this thing where, where we teach from Proverbs 31. And we all know what that is, right? Uh, when you think of Proverbs 31, everybody always thinks of the Proverbs 31 woman. But there are these tremendously wonderful implications in Proverbs 31. And we teach this thing called the Proverbs 31 man. He's mentioned three times, and it's very key to the creation of a home environment that's productive and purposeful. Uh, So that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, in your your circles of influence is to study with people that you want to influence your home, but study your community uh, and study the people in your community. And then we what we did in, in our early years, and we still do this all the time, is that we actually go out and interview them. Uh, we interview the business owners. We interview the pastors. We interview the sheriff, the deputies. Uh, the judges, uh, I just had a recent experience where I was invited by one of our judges to come in. I spent an hour with uh, this particular judge uh, talking about, okay, what can we do to help them with the problems that they're seeing with family breakup? And we spent time in prayer. So uh, they're aware that what they're doing doesn't work. And uh, and so uh, as Christians, we can create alternatives, um, and then you've got to have, uh, you know, a, a process. Uh, we we think of programs, but there's there's no program that's going to take the place of being there and being available and loving these people. Uh, that they, they, they often don't know what it is to be loved. They know what it is to be used, but they don't know what it is to be loved. And uh, and that that's the barrier that that can break things down and then how you handle problems, because if you want to to get into problems that are really messy and nasty and sometimes you're just Lord, I just need wisdom. I don't understand what's going on here and and I don't know how to help. How can we we encourage your justice when we don't even understand the issues of, of what's happening? And, and God will give you wisdom. I mean, that's one of the, the most wonderful promises of Scripture uh, when you don't understand. And, and it's not that you don't understand what God's principles of justice are, but it's how they apply in this particular situation. Uh, and, and a lot of times it has to do with these, these dear people who are so traumatized in life, they're just paralyzed. And I mean, that's just the reality. Uh, and you, you have to come along beside them, put your arms around them, hold them, walk them through and, and, and be willing to do that. Not for days, not for weeks, not for months, but oftentimes for years. So uh, that, that's the first thing. First of all, take a good look at your, your family. And then secondly, begin to interview people in your community uh, and and get a core group of people. Uh, And and our encouragement is quit worrying about denominations. Uh, What we discovered over the years, when God began to lay something on our hearts, we would just start it. And if God didn't call anybody else, he at least called us. And what we discovered is that, is that all of a sudden people would start coming. Now, they might come from the Baptist church, the Methodist church, the Church of Christ. I don't care. Uh, if, if we can get together and work on ethic one of the kingdom, that opens the door for us to talk about ethic two. And do, actually doing the word of God, not debating some esoteric point of difference, uh, that doesn't exalt the crown rights of Jesus Christ. We have often found that in doing the gospel, uh, people, you you don't have to use the terms. Uh, You know, we talk about theonomy and reconstruction, which I think are wonderfully beautiful terms, but you don't have to use those terms. Uh, We we just, and we generally don't, we talk about the ethics of the kingdom. What is God's ethic to the widow? What is God's ethic to the oppressed? What is God's ethic to the poor? How do we put those things into place? And, and when you speak in those terms, people who are motivated by a regenerate heart, uh, they respond to God's ethics. And the reason they do that is because God's promise is true. When he took from them that heart of stone and put in them a heart of flesh, God wrote his laws on their heart. And when they see that in operation, they identify with it, though they may not understand it in its entirety, they identify. And, and so you start in and... Um, and you you realize that uh, God put us here and he gave us his law for the very purpose, or at least one of the very purposes of being able to solve the personal and social problems that develop in a culture because of redemption needing to work itself out in in, in that culture. So that, that would be my encouragement.
1: That's very helpful. Roger, do you have anything else that you want to ask? No. We're coming up on an hour. Tim?
2: Onward and upward. We'll be praying for you. Well, thank Tim, you. Tim,
1: thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been very fruitful, and I think this will help a lot of people uh, in determining how they, too, can continue to advance the kingdom. Thank you for appearing with us Well, today. We,
0: we often have people who contact us Uh and uh, ask to to you know ask us to either come there, uh, which they normally want us to do, we're, we're generally not willing to do that. I, I'm not much of a public speaker, uh, but we will ask them to come to our area so we can put hands on things. And so if there are some people who who want to do some hands on things, uh, then we we would be more than uh, happy to accommodate them coming in one or two or three at a time, no more than that, because you you lose the the, the, the personal touch of community with it. And and besides, uh, when you get bigger than a crowd of three, uh, I'm just not a public speaker. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> how can they contact you? Is there a way that they can contact you if they want to yes. do this?
0: Uh, they can send me an email, uh, which is. Uh, TY Greengate, and I was going to tell you the Greengate story, but I'll do that at another time maybe, Greengate at gmail.com. Uh, Greengate is, is one of those lifelong ambitious programs that, that we're doing in the community. Uh, or they can call me at 256-560-1158. Now, if you call me and I don't know your number because of all the telemarketing stuff that goes on, if you don't leave a message, I will not call you back. Uh so, I, you know, it, because it, it's you, they got the rotodial thing now. So I've had so many offers for the car warranty and the home warranty that have come from every state <laughs> in the union. And so, I, I, you know, if people don't leave a message, I don't call it back.
1: Right. Well, thank you very much.
0: All right. Thank you for having
1: me. This has been Justice in His Kingdom with Roger Oliver and Jerry Lynn Ward on CR 101 Radio Network.